Hello and welcome to the Congo Research Group podcast. I'm Jason Stearns, the director of the Congo Research Group. And today we're going to be speaking with Ida Sawyer, who is the senior Congo researcher for Human Rights Watch. She leads the Congo research team for Human Rights Watch. And we'll be speaking to her on a phone line uh, to Kinshasa. Uh, hello, Ida. Hi, Jason. So I think the, the reason that I wanted to speak to you today was to talk a little bit about the human rights situation in the DRC. There, it's obviously there's always concerns in the DRC, and you have your plate full with stuff in the East and in, and in Kinshasa. But there, there does seem to be a disturbing trend in terms of civil liberties in, in the country. Um, and it seems, at least to me, that this has a lot to do with a pretty uh, acrimonious succession battle that's building up over the presidency. Kabila has to step down in 2016, and there's uh, a deep controversy going on within the ruling coalition as well as within broader society about what's going to happen after that. So we saw, and you've documented this obviously in depth, uh, but we saw protests uh, in starting in the 19th of January that led to 36 people being killed uh, in Kinshasa, that was around the electoral law, and then we saw um, uh, a conference of, or a workshop of civil society activists uh, that were preparing, um, uh, that were doing a training, you could say, for uh, activists with regard to protests in Kinshasa that was rounded up and arrested, and that led, I believe, 26 activists to be arrested on the 15th of March. So. I guess my question is, do you see a broader trend of restriction and clamping down of civil liberties in the Congo? Yes, we've definitely seen in the past several months a very worrying clamp down on freedom of expression and freedom of assembly across the country. And as you said, it's mostly linked to people speaking out against attempted changes to the Constitution or to the electoral law, which would allow President Kabila to stay in power past 2016. And we've seen opposition members, students, activists, members of Kabila's presidential majority arrested, threatened, or even killed for speaking out against these proposed changes. And this does seem you know, a very worrying trend and like it's getting worse as we move closer to the, the election period. Is this something that, so I, I mentioned, I guess, the two most, the, the best known incidents in, in that both took place in Kinshasa, but is this something that is going on, uh, going on around the country? Uh, we have gotten reports of other, other arrests and threats against people who have spoken out against these proposed changes to the Constitution or the electoral law. In Katonga province, in Kamina, a number of UDPS leaders were arrested in January and detained for over a month after they uh, criticized changes to the electoral law. And we've seen the smaller-scale protests happening in other provinces, but the biggest crackdowns have really been in Kinshasa and also in Goma. And, and what's your interpretation of this? Is this the government trying to send a message? Is this just straight-up uh, intimidation of opposition and civil society activists? Um, is this a particular part of the government that's more active, or do you think that there's a cohesive action from the presidency downwards to, to try to stifle dissent uh, or criticism uh, in the run-up to this presidential succession? It's hard to know in a lot of these cases how, how high up it goes and if decisions are being made from the presidency, but we have seen a very clear involvement of the ANR, the National Intelligence Agency, especially in the arrest. Um, that's the arrest that happened in March of the, the pro-democracy activists and 
around 30 of them rounded up. They were taken to the ANR. A number of other opposition leaders, civil society activists who have protested changes to the electoral law or the constitution, they were arrested by the ANR. Many of them held incommunicado in secret detention cells uh, for weeks or longer by the ANR, not given access to their families or lawyers and not being officially charged with anything. So it seems clear the ANR is involved and in the, the crackdown in January, there was, uh, a, in, during the demonstrations in Kinshasa, the Republican Guard, uh, President Kabila's personal security detail, was very heavily deployed throughout Kinshasa, and Republican Guard soldiers were allegedly responsible for many of the killings of protesters during those demonstrations. So we're seeing involvement of Republican Guard, ANR, and in some cases, police. And what, and what happens when you raise these issues, as I'm sure you do, with the various authorities, both with the ANR, uh, but also with the sort of broader political spectrum? What's the, what's the response that you get? Well, from the, the, the official response that the Mende, the government communications minister, and when we talk to the, the head of the ANR, uh, they claim that these activists who've been arrested are terrorists or that they're uh, launching violent insurrection. People who were arrested in January were accused of organizing looting and burning and you know, violent demonstrations. They say they're members of militia groups. Um, so there's an attempt to paint any opposition as uh, violent, militant uh, opposition fighters who are trying to overthrow the government by force. Uh, when you talk in private to other government officials, members of the presidential majority, I think there is a much more mixed position. And we've seen this with members of Kabila's presidential majority speaking out publicly against changes to the Constitution. A number of leaders wrote a public letter to Kabila calling on him to clearly state that he will step down and to uh, name the, the candidate that he would support in the next elections. So there are members of the majority who, who seem to you know, understand the position of those protesting and trying to call on the government to respect the Constitution and Kabila to step down. Do you think so? Until now, the, 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 the clampdown, the arrests, they have targeted mostly civil society activists um, and, uh, I guess, opposition figures. Is there any indication that those members of the ruling coalition, so you mentioned uh, these people writing a letter, so that's the, the, what is now called the Group of Seven, including uh, Olivier Kamitatsu, the planning minister, the national security advisor, Pierre Lumbi. Is there any indication that those people might as well start to face threats, intimidation, and perhaps even arrests? It's, it's very possible. Some of them have already faced threats, and they do fear for their security, and it's, it's possible that there could be moves to arrest them. And you have in, in January Jean-Claude Moyambo, who is a leading political figure from Katanga, who used to be a, a leading member of Kabila's presidential majority, left to join the opposition late last year. He was arrested in January. Um, uh, Vano, another political leader from Katongo, from Katanga, uh, who is a member of Kabila's majority alliance, he was arrested. He's in Kinshasa's uh, central prison. So it's it's possible that they could start going after more senior figures as well in the presidential majority if they if they keep speaking out against 
uh, Kabila trying to extend his staying power. Is, is there any, so these allegations that have been made against civil society activists in particular of insurrection, destabilization of state institutions, is there any reality to that? We haven't seen any proof to back up those allegations. The, the workshop that was held on March 14th and 15th in Kinshasa, that was organized by a group of or, a youth organizations. The objectives of the workshops were to encourage youth to participate responsibly and peacefully in the democratic process. They invited youth activists and musicians from Senegal and Burkina Faso to participate in the workshop, share their experiences. A key focus of the workshop was on peaceful democratic engagement, engaging responsibly. There wasn't anything to indicate any violent activities, incitement to violent, violence, planning, insurrection. And the government so far has not produced any proof to back up those allegations. And as I mentioned earlier, those still being detained haven't officially been, been charged with any offenses. Uh, for the January arrest as well, we haven't seen, seen any clear evidence to back up allegations of promoting violence. There was looting that happened during these demonstrations, uh, but we don't have indications that the civil society leaders who are in prison were responsible for inciting this looting or any other forms of violence. When the arrests happened in response to this, uh, this civil society workshop on, on March 14th and 15th, uh, there was also a U.S. diplomat who was detained, I guess, briefly. Uh, Kevin Stir, I believe his name was, who was part of the Democracy Promotion Program of USAID. Um, what was the U.S.'s involvement in that workshop, and what was the U.S. response to both the detention of the diplomat as well as the arrest of the civil society activists? Right. So the, the U.S. Embassy in Kinshasa did... Uh, partially support the workshop that was held to launch this Savimbi youth movement. Uh, so they did provide financial support to the workshop. And as you mentioned, Kevin Stir, a U.S. diplomat from USAID, was present at the press conference at the end of the workshop. And he was among those detained when military police and ANR came and, and rounded people up after the workshop. Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Kinshasa put out a statement the day after the arrest, and they confirmed the, that the arrest had happened and that the U.S. had partially supported this workshop, and it was part of their overall efforts to promote uh, youth and civil society organizations and democratic processes in, in Congo and other countries across Africa. Um, from what I understand, the U.S. ambassador has raised concerns about uh, the the arrest and the Congolese who remain in detention with senior uh, Congolese officials here in Kinshasa. And earlier this week, President Obama made a call to President Kabila, and we don't know the full content of what was discussed, but according to the, the public readout today, uh, President Obama did call on Kabila to respect the Constitution and the electoral process and ensure uh, freedom of expression and assembly in the, in the lead-up to the elections. Some, some, some critics feel that the U.S. was too tepid in its response, given the fact that this was, after all, uh, an assembly or workshop backed by the U.S. government. You had the arrest of a U.S. diplomat on really no grounds uh, or not no apparent grounds whatsoever. Um, that they were too tepid in, in their response to this. Do you agree with that? 
uh, yes, I think the, the U.S. government uh, could and should be, be saying much more and putting public pressure on the Congolese government to release the activists who are still in detention if they aren't uh, you know, charged with anything credible to ensure they have access to their families and lawyers and to, and to support these activists who participated in the workshop. And this is uh, a, a key pillar of President Obama's policy in Africa to support youth engagement and involvement in the democratic process. Uh, the Youth African, Young African Leaders Initiative, YALI, one of Obama's programs to bring African youth to the White House, to Washington, to uh, see in practice how a democracy works and learn new skills, bring those back to their home countries. And one of the, the activists who helped lead the workshop, the Finlandi workshop in March here in Kinshasa, was a Yali graduate. Um, President Obama himself met with Fadel Barrow, the Senegalese leader who came to Kinshasa and was then arrested after this workshop. So this is really part of President Obama's uh, program and commitment to, to Africa, and I think it's, it's crucial that the U.S. government continue to support these activists when they face problems after trying to put the skills they learned into action back home. Do you think, I mean, in general, we've seen a, a rise in tensions between the donor community and President Kabila. He has uh, said that he wants to do operations against the FPLR in the east of the country alone without UN support. He has asked for a drawdown of the UN mission, a very sharp drawdown of the UN mission by 7,000 troops. Um, in in response to, to this workshop, his communication minister came out with some very strident statements about alleging, basically indirectly saying the U.S. may have been involved in insurrectional activity in, the, in, in Kinshasa, although he didn't he didn't spell it out in so many words. Uh, is is it becoming more and more difficult for donors to engage constructively with the Congolese government? Uh, I I think it is, and I think donors are 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 struggling about to see where they where they can have the most leverage, where they can have influence. Uh, it's clear that the relations between the U.S. and European governments and the Congolese government are. Uh, are are not are not not doing very well at the moment, and uh, as you said, this uh, you know the government insisting on doing the FDLR operations on their own and not uh, changing the commanders so the UN could continue to support them, uh, calling for a significant drawdown on Minusco, and then this uh, the latest reaction to the Filimbi arrest, um, and this this also follows on. Uh, the U.S. Special Envoy to former Special Envoy to the Great Lakes, Russ Feingold, uh, and other U.S. leaders calling very strongly and publicly for Kabila to respect the Constitution and be sure to step down in 2016. And the reaction from the government seems to be, be turning turning away from from the U.S. in that relationship. What kind of leverage does the U.S. have? I mean, or other community, other donors have? I mean, they do provide a lot of aid to the Congo, but almost all of that aid is project-based aid, so it doesn't really go into the, or it isn't touched, or isn't at least open to manipulation by by the government. Uh, a lot of it's into health, education, issues that are not matters of survival necessarily for the Congolese government. Uh, how much, and Kabila has said that in terms of the elections, in terms of security sector reform, these are things that are going to be financed largely by the Congolese government itself. So how much leverage does the U.S. and the donor community really have? 
Um, there, you know, the government does say, and they can turn to their own their own money. Congo is a rich country, and then there are donors like uh, Russia, China, South Africa, Angola, which might be uh, less inclined to look at the, the human rights situation on the ground. Uh, but the, the Western governments do still have influence. The U.S. government has has leverage. They are still a significant donor, a big donor to MINUSCO as well. And as much as the government is saying, calling publicly for a, a drawdown of MINUSCO and saying they don't need MINUSCO, I think practically they still recognize that logistically they rely enormously on the UN peacekeeping mission and for elections to happen, they are going to need support from MONUSCO and for these operations in the East to continue. They still rely on that uh, logistical support, especially from MONUSCO. Um, and then they, you know, I think at the end of the day, they, they do, they, they care about the U.S. position um, and having support from the U.S. government. And I don't think they're ready to, you know, turn a, lose that entirely. Um, you also have a number of Congolese officials and their family members who travel regularly to the United States, to European countries. Um, so you know, another form of leverage they have is you know, blocking visas for certain individuals um, or, block, or putting people on sanctions lists. Um, so there, there still are, are important points of leverage that the U.S. and other, other governments have. Finally, you and I wrote uh, an opinion piece recently about the successor to the gentleman you mentioned, Russ Feingold, as special envoy for the Great Lakes. The U.S. government, uh, Russ Feingold, stepped down recently. The U.S. government has uh, not appointed anybody to succeed him, even though they've known about uh, Feingold's resignation for, for five or six months now. Um, what is the impact of the absence of such a special envoy been, do you think, on the ground, and why do you think it's taking so long? You know, I think we've really seen this this impact and this gap in leadership over the past month uh, since the arrest in March and this deepening clampdown that we're seeing on freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. The U.S. response hasn't been as strong as it could or should be. And a special envoy, a strong U.S. special envoy, can can play that leadership role. Feingold was playing a strong leadership role, and that that needs to continue. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure what the what the delay has been. From what we've heard, there will be a replacement, and a new envoy will be appointed. But I I don't know why it's why it's taking so long. Idasora, thank you very very much. Stay safe in Kinshasa. Thanks, Jason. All right, bye.